0: It's often been said that fences make for good neighbors. <clears throat> not necessarily because you don't want to see your neighbor, but because it, it alleviates confusion. Like, Who's, whose lawn is this? Why is your dog on my side and not your side? Good fences allow for good neighbors. It, it creates boundaries. It tells you what you own and what you don't own. And in addition to that, it also keeps predators out. If it's the right kind of fence, it keeps predators out. It, it might even keep burglars out. So there's nothing wrong with a fence. Now, one of the most common conversations that I'm having with Christians today revolves around the observation that the moral fences of our culture have largely collapsed. I mean, they are like gonzo. And it, it has happened in rapid fashion. So, of course, the world has always been filled with evil. I was born in the 70s. People were sinning back then. They sinned through the 80s, 90s. They've always sinned. Sin has always been in our world. But we've all noticed in the last several years that it seems like like all the fences are down. All the stops have been pulled out. Like anything goes. Like basic, basic, basic categories of morality that aren't even necessarily distinctively Christian, but, but which have been held by people of faith through all of history. They're like gone. To the point that people are dismissive of the concept of gender. Like who would have thought that 25 years ago? Authority. It's like, I hate authority. I don't want to submit to anybody. Sexual immorality is not just something that people do in private. Like, it is the name of the game. It's the way people live their lives. The world that we live in has gone nuts, folks. It's, there's craziness out there. All the moral fences are gone. And this is more than just an observation. It's affecting relationships. It's destructive It destroys marriages. It confuses people in terms of their mission in life. But most importantly, it robs our holy God of the glory that is due his name. This God that was so gracious to create us with all of our complexity, our emotions, our intellect, our will in this world where there's so many opportunities to experience God's glory. uh, We are being robbed of that. And our country's being robbed of that because evil is reigning supreme in our land. And I doubt I would even have to convince any of you of that. You're all like in your heart saying like, amen, I believe this. I'm seeing this. I'm tracking with you. So having acknowledged that reality, what I want to do now is look at the book of Revelation because you know what the book of Revelation does? Revelation calms our fears. And it increases our hope because it presents us with the outcome. That's what it does. So we get to gaze into the future and see how things turn out. And what we discover is that in spite of the nuttiness and the craziness and the godlessness, God triumphs in the end. He really does. He's still very much sitting on his throne. He's not freaking out. He's not losing his cool. We're going to see this in the text. God is still regal. He's still very much in charge. But he's going to demonstrate the fullness of his power sometime soon. And so it begs the question. It causes us to think. And to make sure that we end up on the winning side. Are you on the winning side? I hope you're on the winning side, because it matters. So in this text we're going to study, there's a couple things we see. First of all, we discover what happens to believers in the end. Then we discover what happens to unbelievers in the end. And then we're taught how to respond to all of that. So just to kind of set this passage in a futuristic timeline, I believe, as I've been teaching, that this portion of Revelation is describing events that will take place during a great seven-year tribulation period where the current church has gone to be with the Lord, but during that time God continues to work and large numbers of believers, notably Jewish people, finally come and surrender themselves to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And then it's like all hell breaks loose and life becomes incredibly challenging and difficult for them. So as we as we study the kind of challenges that they're experiencing, we're thinking, well, that's not us, that's future. Yeah, but we're already experiencing a lot of that same kind of stuff. Those patterns in the future are being seen in our world in the here and now. And so again, it becomes highly applicable for our lives. So first of all, the question is, what happens to believers as God comes and deals with evil? So chapter 14 Verse 14, I'll read a couple verses here and then we'll study it a bit. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. So this is a reference to Jesus with a golden crown on his head. In other words, he is the king and a sharp sickle in his hand. So that's one of those big blades with a handle on it they would use to swipe through the wheat or the barley or the grasses and cut them down it's like a giant harvesting knife and this one is described as being quite sharp and another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, in all likelihood, what the Apostle John, who's receiving this vision, is speaking about is the same thing that Matthew spoke about in Matthew chapter 13. So you can go check that out. Matthew chapter 13, verse 30 speaks of a great harvest of believers. So notice the name of our church is Harvest. And there's many things you could call your church, but we call our church Harvest. And that's a biblical word because it reflects the call of Christ upon his church to act like spiritual farmers. And farmers look out on their fields, and at the right time when the conditions are ripe and the grain is dry, they go out and they harvest their fields when it's like white. Jesus uses that imagery in the Gospels, and he tells the church, the fields are white unto harvest, meaning they are ripe. I want you to go out and harvest souls. So here in the eschatological future, as the Bible speaks of converts during the tribulation, finally the time comes when it's like, okay, enough is enough. Notice it says that the harvest is fully ripe. So this means that in this book, the book of Revelation, the time has come when the final handful of people have been converted to Jesus Christ, and the call goes out, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to go and collect up those that have honored me and surrendered themselves to me. And so Jesus Christ is the one that is involved in reaping this harvest of souls. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 to 43, it also tells us that Jesus isn't the only one planting seeds. So Jesus is out planting seeds, but it says there in the Gospel of Matthew that Christ sows good seed. But there are other forces at work in the world that sow bad seed. Maybe you've had this experience at home where you have a bare patch of lawn. It's all dirt. You're like, I gotta, be, I gotta go buy some grass seed. And if you're cheap like me, you go to the store and you pick the cheapest bag of grass seed, you know, to save like two bucks. And like two months later, you're regretting it because instead of lush green grass, you end up with a patch of weeds on your lawn. There's bad seed. And there's good seed. Not all grass seed is equal. Jesus is planting what is called the good seed. True, true converts, if you truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are one of the good seeds that Christ has planted. Religion plants bad seeds. False teachers plant bad seeds. The devil plants bad seeds. They plant things that look like they're growing, but they're poisonous. They're obnoxious. They're unhelpful. Jesus plants good seed. And as you grow in your faith, how do you know if you're one of the good seeds or the bad seeds? The Bible carries this analogy forward in passages like Galatians chapter 5. Good seed bears good fruit. Good seed grows and bears things like love. So it's like evaluate your life. Am I? Do I just sing about love and believe in love and appreciate God's love for me? Or do I actually love people? Am I a loving man? Do I care for people? Do I empathize for people? Do I look out for people? Joy. Is my life marked by joy, peace. Do I have a a certain calm about me even when life's kind of crazy? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, the spiritual fruit. So we should always be assessing our lives for these kinds of things. And in all of that, as we read about this, as God comes back and harvests souls from across the earth, I think what this text is serving to accomplish in our lives is it builds assurance it builds hope so if you're like me come on like why are people so crazy like why why are they still butchering babies in the womb why can people not see there's a difference between men and women why do people gravitate towards materialism and hedonism Why do people hate God so much? You start to get like worked up about it. God's like, chill out. I win. Just relax. In the end, I win. Don't let it rock your boat so much. Righteous anger. Awesome. But don't let it unravel your life. In the end, at the right time, God will complete his plan. A plan that he started before the beginning of the world to redeem a people unto himself. Who will bring him great glory and honor. So that's lesson number one. Lesson number two flows from the question, what happens to unbelievers? Now, of course, any one of us could have been or may still be an unbeliever. So we don't preach passages like this with some sort of a callous disregard for the lost. But as we look at this passage, what it does is it serves to dismiss A lot of the false responses that people concoct in answer to the question, what happens to unbelievers? Some of the false responses is, well, because God is loving, they must get a second chance. So after you die, there must be several more opportunities to finally surrender yourself to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Or maybe maybe God gives people a pass. Maybe if you're like, you know, the whole grading on a curve thing. You may not be anywhere near a hundred, but as long as you're in like the top 30% of nice people, maybe God kind of gives those people a pass and he just reserves eternal hellfire for like the, the real heinous, like the serial killers and the rapists and the pedophiles. No, that's not true either. Maybe God just overlooks our sin. He's like, eh, I didn't expect much more from you. So come on in. No, that's not what he does either. The stark reality which we must preach and teach, because it's absolutely true, is that there's a second kind of harvest that's going to come upon the world. And this is not a good kind of harvest. Look at verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple of heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. That is the altar of God in the throne room of God. The angel who has authority over the fire. What does fire do? Does it create or does it destroy? Fire destroys. And he called out with a loud voice to the one who sat on the, who, who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. It's like, oh, I like grapes. This is another kind of harvest. How bad can it be? But look at this. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press, so far so good, of the wrath of God, not good. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, probably reference to the holy city, either physical or spiritual, the city of Zion. In other words, the place where God resides. This is outside. This is away from God. This is a judgment passage. And look at this. And the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Have you ever heard of giant hogweed you ever heard of it it's an invasive plant that they're finding in our own province it kind of looks like queen anne's lace or wild carrot kind of you might think wow that is kind of pretty i'm going to go up and clip it off and make a bouquet of giant hogweed and bring it to my wife she's going to be super impressed But this plant is extremely poisonous. I looked up some pictures. If you touch this plant, and then where it touches your skin, it's exposed to sunlight, you can get third-degree burns, like massive blisters and scars that could last for the rest of your life. And so the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry is saying, if you live in our province, Google this thing, know what it looks like, and stay away. Report it to the MNRF, and they'll come and destroy this thing. Now, at some point, it was just a cute little seed. But it's a deadly plant that is invading our region and perhaps other regions as well. Unbelievers are like hogweed to God. They might be growing they might be producing their own seed, their own fruit, but they damage people and they rob God of glory and eventually they will be harvested as well, but they will be harvested unto judgment. So this passage here is likely a reference to the harvest of unbelievers unto destruction. And again, in verse 20, where it says they'll be taken outside the city and crushed as in a wine press, this means they will be separated from God. Now, it's a graphic passage. It's kind of gross. Like maybe you don't really like thinking about blood, but we're forced to think about blood here. The blood of the crushing of God's enemies is described as being as high as a horse's bridle. And 1600 stadia is the equivalent of about 300 kilometers Now, this is not intended to be literal, because if you had 300 kilometers of blood flowing out from Mount Zion, the literal Mount Zion, you'd be like 225 kilometers out into the Mediterranean Sea. But it it symbolically helps us to see the, the sheer volume of people that hate God. They hate him. And they have stood in opposition to him, and they have refused to bow their knee to him. So if the word of God goes out and says, hey, you know what? We need to repent of our sins. We need to turn away. We're innately sinful. We're not innately good. We're not born awesome. We're born awful. And we need to surrender ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're like, nah, I'm going to do my own thing. You are actually among the majority of people. That's how most people throughout human history respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there's something in us that wants to remain in charge and we stand in opposition to God. We literally are rebels without a cause. And here in the future, we see that the sheer volume of blood speaks of God's pervading judgment against sin. God, don't let anybody tell you otherwise, God will very much judge sin. Do we love talking about that? No. Do we revel in the images of God's enemies being crushed and this bloody mess flowing out across the land? No, we do not revel in that. However, we tolerate it because we revel in the glory of God. And our greater concern is that God would be glorified and the creator might be honored. And our lesser concern is that those that hate the creator are being judged as sorrowful and sad as that might be. Verse 15 says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. So again, the word number seven is often in this passage symbolic of perfection. So it's just it's bringing to our minds, okay, God's plan is perfect. God's messengers are perfect. Everything God does is perfect, including plagues, symbolize judgment. Everything's perfect when it comes to God. So there's seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, thank goodness, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So one thing that we can be assured of is God's wrath won't last forever on this world, and it certainly won't be present in the eternal kingdom. A time will come when God will pour out his wrath, and that'll be it. It's not going to continue on like this. Human history is essentially a series of loops. Obedience and rebellion, obedience and rebellion, obedience and rebellion. God permits evil and he judges it. People come back. It's it's seen in Israel. I, I see it in my own life. It's like I'm living large for Jesus and then I'm kind of a jerk. And then I'm living large for Jesus and then I'm kind of off base. But eventually, enough's enough. God is going to orchestrate things in such a way that all evil is going to be judged, and we who know the Lord will be fully sanctified. God will pour out global judgment upon the earth at the end of the tribulation period. Now in the text it says, which are last. So again, God is coming to the end of his toleration for evil. And evil will eventually be vanquished. That's good news. It's really good news. In fact, how good is it? It's described here as great and amazing. Great and amazing. Which means that rather than just feeling sorry for evil, God's sense of justice and righteousness and holiness even supersedes his sorrow for evil. God's heart is often grieved by evil, God's righteous acts, God's benevolent acts, when he provides for you, let's say he gives you life. We could say that's great and amazing. When God forgives you, say that's great and amazing. When God blesses you materially, that's great and amazing. If God gives you a little baby, that's great and amazing. But you know what? God's judgment is also great and amazing. That's how it's described here. Everything God does is great and amazing. So we don't apologize for receiving blessing and we don't apologize for the fact that god will judge the world this both of these things are great and amazing everything god does is great and amazing so then it calls to question this question like how do i react to all of this i've seen the fate of believers i've seen the fate of unbelievers how do i react to all of this and then we have chapter 15 verse 2 says and i saw What appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. So as I've mentioned before, Jewish people, the original recipients of this text, okay, they're they're not, they're not like us. Some cultures are seafaring cultures and some are land loving cultures. And the Jewish people, even though they lived on the side of a sea, were land lovers. So you're like, well, what about the fishermen? Those were inland lakes. They weren't interested in going out on the sea. The sea, it's described often in the prophets as a place of chaos and godlessness. I was like, I don't want to go there. I don't mind fishing on the Sea of Galilee, but no thanks. I'm not going out on the ocean. So it symbolizes almost always in the word of God, chaos. And you're like, I don't get it. I love the ocean. Well, they didn't. So you kind of got to enter into their mindset here. But in heaven, the sea out front of God's throne room it's always described as being like glass, just like there's not even a ripple on it, which communicates what? Safety. The chaos is gone. In the presence of God, there is safety. But at the same time, he says, what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. So in, in the calmness, there is this fearful presence reigning, God is both a calming presence, but he's also to be feared. He's to be revered. It's like, I love him, but I ain't going to mess with him. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass. So these are all the martyrs that had Remember the beast? There's beast number one and beast number two and there's Antichrist. I'm just trying to shred God's people and people's lives are taken by these despotic individuals or systems. But now they're in the presence of God and they have harps with the harps of God in their hands and they're singing and they're worshiping the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb. So again, just before we read their song Keep in mind, presence of God equals peace and calm, mixed with a sense of overwhelming power. You're experiencing that at the same time. Maybe like the closest analogy, although it's like pitiful, actually, is when you you meet someone that you really, really like. Maybe it's your your grandfather, your father, or a trusted mentor. And you, you have like mixed feelings whenever you're in their presence, you're like, I love this person. I trust this person. I want to be around this person, but I'm I'm not going to poke at them. I'm not going to belittle them because I can see in them like a strength. They could like crush me. And you kind of live in that tension where there is love and trust, but there's also like deep respect and a healthy fear. This is what it's like to be in the presence of God. God. How do you respond to a God like that? A God who is loving and merciful and welcoming and helps us to overcome, but also a God who is to be revered while you worship Him. That's what you do. And so the conquerors, they don't stand in heaven and they're like, Hey, God, you're going to give us some brownie points for standing strong. They're not looking for attention from God. They're wanting to give attention to God. That's worship. Sometimes, by the way, sidebar, we get that mixed up. And we're like, Lord, why are you not giving me more? Because I am an awesome Christian. Shared my faith five times this week. Read my Bible daily. Prayed. Gave a lot of money to my church. Loved people. Like I'm pouring it out. Why don't you pour it back? And so even in our Christian lives as we seek to serve the Lord we can become guilty of self-centeredness. And here these individuals who gave their lives even unto death are just giving it all back to God. Here's what they say about God. This informs our worship by the way. Great and amazing are your deeds, so we should say that in worship. O Lord God the Almighty, we should say that, just and true are your ways. O king of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? What is the mission of God? The mission of God is the glory of God. Don't get it wrong. The mission of God is not the salvation of the lost. That's the mission of the church. The mission of God is ultimately the glory of God. So as the church does its job and shares the gospel, and people come to Christ... God is glorified as disciples are made. God wants all of your homage, all of your worship. That's part of worship. We say things like, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. When we receive a reward in life, Maybe you just did really well at school this year. I know some of you graduated this week. You you receive a reward. You receive a scholarship, some sort of an honor. You get a little extra attention. Or if you're a good athlete and you win, you get a reward. Or you worked really hard at work and you made your company a lot of money and you get a reward. What do you do with the reward? You keep it. That's what you do with rewards. You keep them. They're yours. Nobody expects you to give them away. But in the spiritual realm, it's not like that. When God rewards us, we give him worship. We give him honor. We turn the attention back to him. So when God, think about it this way. When God sets his attention on you, what's his ultimate goal? His ultimate goal is that you might set your eternal attention on him. Why does God give you rewards? So that you might reward him with your worship, with your love. And I've been preaching this a lot, probably because I need to hear it. Maybe you do too. And that is that, Worship of God in heaven will be so mind-bogglingly like incredibly awesome, like super great and everything else wonderful that we'll never yawn, we'll never be bored. It'll just be like mind-bogglingly attractive and incredible forever and ever and ever. That's how great and awesome our God is. And again, I know you've been to boring church services and boring worship services and you're like, I I don't... I don't mind worship, but I'm not really sure if I want to do that for all of eternity. Look, don't worry about that, because this is just a a, a lame little itsy-bitsy something or other compared to what eternal glory is going to be like and eternal worship is going to be like. You will be satisfied from top to bottom in heaven because we're going to give it all back to him. God gives so that he might receive. So what do I say in worship? What do I do in worship? We're always trying to teach ourselves how to be better worshipers. Um, One of the things I've noticed in a lot of Christian churches is that we're, we're okay with the idea of being lifelong students of the Bible. We're okay with being stretched and challenged and growing, but we sort of think we've already arrived in worship. Like, I got it down. I know how to sit, I know how to stand, I know how to open my mouth, and I got it down. No, you don't have it down, and neither do I. We're always growing in worship as worshipers. It's an ongoing process, just like our growth and knowledge of scripture, or walking with the Holy Spirit, and being sensitive to his voice in our lives. We're not sanctified in any area yet fully, so we're growing in worship. So a few lessons on worship here. What do we say and do in worship? Well, we praise him. Just look at the text. We praise him for his deeds. We talk about them. We we articulate them in song and in testimony and in conversation. We, like, Start telling people more about what God is doing and less about what you're doing. Like, Who really cares what you're doing when God is doing great and mighty things in your life? But in conversation, just kind of be aware of it. Be aware of that innate temptation when you enter into conversation with someone to tell them about yourself. This is what I did this week. This is what I accomplished. Now, there's nothing wrong with that on a certain level because people might be interested in that. But more often than not, people should hear about what God is doing in your life than what you're just kind of doing of your own strength. So just be conscious of that. It's an act of worship when we proclaim God's deeds. We thank God for his might. He's called the Almighty God here. He is mighty, like really mighty. And we want to declare that. He's described in, in language that communicates his, his justice, his truth. Justice is this, this concept. I mean, the, the Old Testament prophets like harped on it. They drove this nail deep into the mind of the Jewish people. God is a God of justice. So that means that when something is not right, when there's, there's abuse or there's maybe ridicule, or someone's out there killing other people, or whatever it might be. God is a God of justice. He's concerned that righteousness reigns. It's part and parcel of who he is. And he will display his justice in the end. So we we praise him for that. He's the king. We need to be reminded of that all the time because we like to act like kings and queens, but he is the king. We glorify his name. We want to make him famous. We put his name in lights. We talk highly of him. We don't blaspheme his name. That's the opposite of glorifying his name. We, we don't say in a swearing kind of way, like, oh my God, we say that in worship. We don't say, oh God, other than in worship. We don't say Jesus Christ, other than in worship. That's just using God's name in vain is not part of the Christian vernacular. We just don't do that. We glorify his name. We declare that he is distinct. We declare that he is holy. And then we just declare the fact that God will, as he says in his word, he will bring to himself a broad cross section of people from all nations, tribes and tongues. And that's just really awesome. He he can break through like ethnic barriers that we may not be able to break through, linguistic barriers. God loves the world. And in the end, there will be a global community from all tribes, tongues, and nations, both the seed of Abraham and the spiritual seed of Abraham that will worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So our reward for faithfulness is worship. And that is a huge reward. Our reward for faithfulness is is worship. It's like, what am I going to get, Lord, for serving you? You are going to get me. Awesome. That's all I need. Lord, what are you going to give me for serving you so well? You get to be around me. Now, can you imagine if we said that to one another? Okay, if you do really, really well, son or daughter, at school, guess what? You get to hang out with me for the rest of your life. They're going to like deliberately fail everything. Just hang around with me. What's the greatest blessing I could ever give you? My presence. This guy's arrogant. But God is not. God is different. God is distinct. God is allowed to say, our reward for faithfulness is worship. And after this, I looked. This is verse 5, chapter 15. After this, I looked. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And moving forward now to chapter 16, we're going to see those plagues being poured out upon the earth. But just think about this. Have you ever ever been kind of in like a panic because something's not right? So on on occasion, um, when Susie and I were raising our children they were small, you'd be like in a mall or a crowd. And if you had one of those situations where suddenly you're like, where's my kid? And you, you hear the stories about kids being abducted and you're just like, oh, and you're looking, where where is this child? And then you find the child, and it's like, okay. But there's this moment that life's not right, something is out of whack, and you're kind of struck with like a, a panic. And it normally doesn't help you to like think more clearly. You start to think less clearly. Or maybe you you can't find your phone. You're like, where's my phone? And by the way, for some people, those are like equally disturbing. (laughs) I can't find my phone. I live off my phone. My my phone is my best friend. And I feel like a polygamist. I have a wife and a phone. I'm married to both. Can't do without it. You're like panicky because something's not right. Or whatever the illustration might be, you've experienced panic. But God, here's the thing about God. He's been offended since the beginning of time. us. He sees all of the evil in the world, all of the chaos to a greater degree than we can ever observe. He's seen it for millennia. You're almost saying like, God must be getting really worked up, getting kind of panicky, getting kind of anxious. And he must always be like on edge. But no, while he's just, and while he's righteous, and while he's about to dispense wrath, like everything here reeks of orderliness and royalty and holiness and purity like as the angels are getting ready to pour the bowls of god's wrath upon the earth they're dressed in gold they're described in language that speaks of their holiness god is god's glory is emanating from his throne in the form of smoke he's always in control as God's agents step forward to dispense final judgment. Isn't that awesome about God? Like you could say nothing rattles God's cage. It doesn't mean he's, okay, that doesn't mean he's passive. That doesn't mean he's unaware. That doesn't mean God doesn't express himself through grief or righteous anger or justice. He has all of that. But he's never like, oh man, my plan's not working here. Like I thought this was going to go differently. God is always in control. He's absolutely in charge and he's never panicked. And because we worship him and serve him, that should just give us a healthy dose of calm and peace and hope and confidence. Even down here, when in all of our weakness and our brokenness, we see all of this stuff taking place in our world. And maybe we're even affected by it or we're guilty of it. God is on his throne. So as we leave here today, here's what we need to do. We need to warn other people. We need to warn other people that God will vindicate himself and his children. He will win. He will win. And then we need to do a personal self-assessment and ask ourselves, am I on the winning side? Am I on the winning side? Am I living my life, even in my own sinfulness, seeking, yearning for the glory of God? When I sin, do I quickly confess When I venture off the path, do I quickly repent and turn back onto the path? Because in the end, folks, know this. God's word declares it. Human history proves it. The Holy Spirit testifies to it. God wins. Make sure you're on the winning team.